This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Hello, everyone, and welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Tom Oates here. Always pleased to bring the Information Gateway podcast to you and grateful you've chosen to spend your time with us. And of course, a reminder, you can find the Information Gateway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. We bring new episodes to you each month. So, hey, subscribe and collect that information right there uh, on your smartphone or however you listen to podcasts. Now, today's episode dives into the Family First Prevention Services Act, not necessarily breaking down the act or the various provisions, but how agencies can approach implementing the act and helping to answer some of the most common questions that come up along the way. For a quick background, the Family First Prevention Services Act has become law. Arguably, it includes some of the biggest changes to funding child welfare since Title IV was established in 1980. Now, while states have started to develop and submit their implementation plans to the Children's Bureau, questions have risen about exactly how to implement some of the provisions. So, to help agencies work their way through Family First, an implementation guide has been developed. It's called Implementing the Family First Prevention Services Act, a technical guide for agencies, policymakers, and other stakeholders. It was put together by a coalition of organizations led by the Children's Defense Fund. And we'll make a note that the work was funded by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, the Redlich Horowitz Foundation, and the Zoma Foundation. So when you first look at the guide, you will notice it is big. And it's actually growing as new information is gathered and new questions arise. Now, the guide is available online at childrensdefense.org slash implementing hyphen family hyphen first. That's childrensdefense.org slash implementing hyphen family hyphen first. So you're going to hear from members of three of the seven organizations who came together to develop the guide. We talked about how agencies can best use the guide, common questions the entire group wanted to address in the guide, and exactly how they're working to keep the guide relevant over time. We spoke with Stephanie Spro, the Director of Child Welfare Policy for the Children's Defense Fund, Rebecca Roebuck, Child Focus's Policy Director, and Zach Laris, the Director of Federal Advocacy and Child Welfare Policy with the American Academy of Pediatrics. Really important stuff here as states and agencies work their way through Family First. It's all right here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast. Rebecca, Stephanie, and Zach, welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Thank you. And guys, let yeah, let's just start right here from from the top because in opening up the guide, it's big, it's robust, and and Family First itself is big and robust, and and brings up a lot of questions for a lot of different folks who who touch child welfare. And so, when the guide was developed, give me a sense of who the guide was primarily developed for and and what you hope that they'll be able to do with it. Sure. So this is um, Stephanie with the Children's Defense Fund. 
And I think it's important to first provide context as to why we all came together to work on this important project. When Family First was signed into law in February 2018, it set into motion some of the most sweeping, long sought-after reforms to the child welfare system in more than a decade. Um, Family First makes historic and long overdue steps towards correcting the misalignment between federal child welfare funding and the better outcomes for children and families who are involved in the child welfare system. And while the opportunities for jurisdictions under this new law are enormous, so are the complexities and challenges around successful implementation. And so in order for these historic reforms to be realized, we really need to ensure that states and tribes and other stakeholders are um, fully aware of the various provisions in the law, understand all the new requirements, and are thoughtfully planning and preparing their systems for these new requirements and reforms. And so as jurisdictions are getting underway um, for these new requirements, we thought this guide would be a critical tool in helping them understand the law and make sure it's working for children and families. And so the guide is intended to provide answers and questions posed about family first. Um, some questions are about specific provisions of the new law. Others require interpretation of the language in family first. And others are um, suggestions about ways various ways um, specific provisions could be implemented. And so the guide is really intended primarily for those in states and tribe agencies who are implementing Family First, but we also hope that this guide can be used for other stakeholders who are impacted by the law or are trying to make this law um, a success. So that includes alumni from the foster care system, birth parents, kinship caregivers, foster parents, adoptive parents, other advocates, uh, private child welfare agency leaders, line workers, program providers, judges, and other court personnel, um, pretty much anyone who's really working to improve outcomes for children and families who are in or at risk of entering the child welfare system. But this was primarily geared towards those state and tribe agencies who are really the ones who are going to be making this uh, law work for children and families. You know, one of the things when you open up the guide, one of the first things you see as, you, as, as the pages open up is you see all the partner agencies that went into this. So give me a sense and give, give our listeners a sense of that this isn't just the Children's Defense Fund. They're, they're, who are the other organizations that made up this, this team that went in and, and developed the guide? And give me a sense of why all of these different teams were brought on board. Well, first, uh, this was a huge undertaking by several partners. Um, this really was a, a wonderful joint effort, um, and we thank everyone who was involved in developing this guide. The guide was intentionally developed by a group of diverse partners that were very active in the development and passage of Family First with the goal of bringing together our unique expertise and perspectives on the different provisions of the new law. So the collaborating partners were the Children's Defense Fund, the American Academy of Pediatrics, Child Focus, Foster Club, Generations United, Juvenile Law Center, and the National Indian Child Welfare Association. And these organizations were involved in the initial drafting of the guide. Each organization was assigned with leading in the development of a specific chapter or subsection that reflected their area of expertise. So, for example, Generations United, an organization that is really leading the way in promoting policy and practice reforms that best support grand families or kinship families where a relative has stepped in to care for a child, took the lead on the chapter and questions that were 
relevant to the investments made in Family First around new supports for relatives caring for children. Our partners at the National Indian Child Welfare Association, for example, developed the chapter on the requirements and opportunities for tribal nations under Family First. Um, they also helped review the guide overall to make sure the questions that we had were relevant to tribes. And so we purposely divided up the work and content this way to ensure that the partners and advocates who were most familiar with the details of the specific provisions and the background as to why those reforms were necessary were the ones crafting the questions and answer to those pieces. And this, pro this approach, um, I think, worked well, and not only did it help us ensure that we had those expertise and those relevant areas providing their input and knowledge about how a jurisdiction should be implementing these different requirements, but it also allowed those leading organizations to include the types of questions that they were hearing from their partners about those specific provisions. Um, in addition to those seven leading collaborating organizations I just listed, we also worked with several other organizations who provided their review and additional expertise um, and thoughts as we developed and finalized the guide. And those organizations were the Annie E. Casey Foundation, the Center for the Study of Social Policy, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, Children and Families Future, First Focus, Georgetown Center for Children and Families, True North Group, and Youth Villages. Again, we worked with those partners who were very active in Family First and wanted that additional review um, and level of knowledge as we were finalizing that piece. And, and then finally, um, I just wanted to mention that we worked closely with Dennis Blazy, who worked for 24 years as a budget fiscal officer for the Office um, for Children and Family Services in Ohio. Um, he has a vast knowledge and, ex and experience within the Child Welfare Agency, and we wanted to help ensure that his perspective was there to ensure that the answers to our questions rung true to those who would be in charge in reading this guide and also providing us with that great guidance to some of the very nuanced technical fiscal pieces of our answers and questions. You know, it, you bring up a good point, and actually you're, you're, you're putting something that we'll, we'll address later about having so many different organizations that not only can come together and provide their expertise, but also have their ears out to the various, you know, constituency groups, your stakeholders that are going to turn around and say, oh, wait, how do I do this or what else is coming in? Because the questions that then come up from the field and, and just a teaser for those who are listening, stick around for a little bit later when we start talking about how those questions then still help the guide continue to grow and continue to be relevant. So you I guess parcel out the chapters for those who are in the know and with the most understanding about about the uh, the, the the needs uh, of you know agencies that are going to implement families first. You know, for for Rebecca and Zach and and all of these groups, when you guys come together, talk to me about not only how the recommendations were developed, but then also when everybody's at the table, how they're agreed to by such a large diverse group. Well, it was a long process, and um, I think to Children's Defense Fund's credit, um, Stephanie and her team who led us the whole way, I mean, they they were wonderful about um, bringing us together in person so that um, particularly for the trickier questions that came up that there wasn't consensus on, we were able to talk through those together as a group and when necessary, get clarification from um staff on Capitol Hill um, and other experts, um, you know, to the extent that we weren't able to answer a question collectively as a group. But 
in several cases, we had repeated conversations about the intent of the law, um, how we imagined a provision playing out, the pros and cons to various interpretations. Um, and then ultimately, you know, I think in most cases, we're able to land on um, a, an answer um, that we felt would be most useful for the field. In some cases, that was, we don't know the answer yet. Um, but in, in any case, we there were multiple conversations to help ensure that what we were putting out to the field was as accurate and useful as possible. Yeah, let's keep in mind, folks, this is a, a guide to help implementation, not not a policy of how it will be done, because uh, we know throughout agencies and really at the beginning of this, we're talking about a system and a system that deals with people and there's different geographies and different laws and policies and all of that kind of comes into play into a, uh, a word that uh, was brought up, I think, maybe within the first sentence when we started talking complexity. And so that's that's kind of where we do find ourselves. So underneath this idea of, of guidance, um, talk to me about those most common concerns, those most common issues that you guys wanted to address when, when you were developing the guide. So this is Zach at AAP. I know one of the things that we've had um, a lot of questions about from the field has been around the requirements in Family First for um, group care. So the new qualified residential treatment program requirements, um, all of the new rules around the financing of non-family-based settings. And so that was one in which we knew that we were getting a lot of questions from jurisdictions, from service providers, that there was a lot of um, misunderstanding in the field just from all the various iterations of Family First and the precursor legislation that had been out there. And so there was a huge need and opportunity to make sure that folks really understood um, what was actually in the law. And so to Rebecca's point earlier, a big part of what we were doing was not only trying to lay out very methodically and clearly exactly what's in there, but also to provide some additional context. Because this is a really, a, you know, a, a significant shift in the incentive structure for how we finance um, foster care placements. And so beyond just the sort of rules of the road and the granular questions around how to um, comply with you know, serving as a qualified residential treatment program, it's also helpful to understand what was Congress thinking when they put this law together? What was the underlying approach here and why? So that we could help provide some understanding to jurisdictions that are implementing, for example, that the prevention and the group care requirement pieces, there's a reason that they're both in the same law, that they're very connected to each other. And that there's a, an opportunity here to really change the whole continuum of care, to move more children out of group care into family foster care, keep more kids safely at home with families. And so that was a chance for us as we worked through the complexity of that section of the guide to explain um, both the technical ramifications of the policy to really give a, a, a clear and cogent explanation of that, but also provide some explanation of the underlying approach there to give some context to help support um, jurisdictions that are implementing and stakeholders who are part of that process. Rebecca, Stephanie, other thoughts and on, on those popular concerns? Because as the questions came up about Family First, uh, the, the questions kept coming. And what were uh, some of those other popular kind of common concerns you guys wanted to address with the guide? 
I think there were many. I'm happy to take a stab at a few. Um, I think it would take us probably an entire conversation um, just to talk through some of the misunderstandings and um, confusing aspects of Family First because it is so complex. Um, There are a couple that came to my mind most immediately, which actually don't have to do with the two major aspects of the law, prevention services or QRTPs. Um, The first is that... I guess this is related to um, the prevention elements, but we want to ensure that pregnant and parenting teens aren't forgotten as an eligible population. Um, Much of the conversation um, related to Family First implementation right now has to do with candidacy and what that means. And we intentionally um, dedicated a section of the guide um, to pregnant and parenting teens um, because they are singled out as an eligible population that is eligible for prevention services as well as an exemption under the QRTP requirements. Um, We know that young people in foster care are more likely to become parents at an early age than their peers in the general population, and that they don't get nearly enough support to care for their children. And in many cases, their kids end up in foster care themselves. So given what we know about the intergenerational cycles of children and families in the foster care system, this population is really essential when we talk about um, preventing children from entering foster care and preventing maltreatment across the board. I think the other sort of technical detail that I wanted to point out, which um, again is uh, perhaps not what listeners were hoping to hear about, but just wanted to point out that Family First allows Title IV-E maintenance payments to be used for the placement of kids already in foster care with a parent in a family-based residential treatment center. Um, These centers are truly amazing places where children can stay with their parents while their parents are receiving treatment for substance use disorder, um, for substance use disorders that they have. Um, And they provide comprehensive and really holistic and wraparound supports to children and families. Um, We know that there are many children in foster care already who could be placed with a parent in this type of treatment setting. And that could be um, maintaining really important family connections that aren't happening right now. Um, In that provision of Family First, it's super important, and it went into effect October 1st of 2018. Um, And it's actually disconnected from the prevention provisions in the sense that you don't have to implement them together. Um, We have heard some confusion in the field about, number one, whether um, just folks considering that as part of the prevention bucket. And of course, the two are complementary, but you certainly don't have to be moving forward with implementation of the prevention provisions in order to get started on that opportunity. I think the other um, confusing element um, or something that we've heard about is um, that this provision might create a disincentive to place kids in foster care. So to bring them into foster care in order to place the child with their parent in a family-based residential treatment center. And that really wasn't the intent of the law. Again, we know that there are kids already in foster care who could be benefiting from this provision. Um, It's just a different point of intervention along the continuum. We also hope that family-based residential treatment centers will be providing evidence-based services and programs um, that are eligible to receive or for reimbursement under the 4E prevention services option. 
Um, so in that way, um, family-based treatment centers can be, and children and families can be benefiting from the prevention provisions as well um, in order to support that type of substance use disorder treatment. You know, I, I want to pull on something a, a little bit here because you guys have mentioned the idea of, or not the idea, but th- there is confusion, confusion in interpreting uh, how provisions should be implemented or how they could be implemented, but also misperceptions. Uh, and so I'd like to pull away from maybe the confusion toward questions of how do I do this uh, versus what are some of the misperceptions that you guys have found yourself, you know, trying to, 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 you know, mitigate or kind of clear the air and let folks know, no, this is really what we're talking about over here. Uh, what are some of those common misperceptions that you've come up with in, in, in talking with stakeholders about not only developing the guide, but family first in general? This is Zach. Zach, do you maybe want to talk about the QRTP misconceptions? Yeah, so um, definitely that's been an area that QRTP section of family first has been a lot of misperceptions. Um, I'd say a, a great example of that is the law is quite clear that all of the requirements around QRTP um, are focused on um, eligibility to receive federal Title IV-E funds. So that means that states have the capacity to continue to do um, whatever they would like to do with their state and local dollars. Um, that's been an area where there's been a lot of confusion about whether the law um, is creating new requirements that prohibit states from being able to do um, anything outside of what's funded through 4E as they would so choose to do. So there's been a lot of confusion there with you know, some states saying, oh, does this mean, for example, that I'm, I'm going to have to close down all of my group homes or that I'm no longer going to be able to operate this particular type of facility? And so a lot of what we've been trying to explain in the guide is this law is around federal financing. So this is the rules of the road for what the federal government will fund um, at the state level in terms of group care. And beyond that, um, certainly you know, localities and states are able to do with their own dollars what they would so choose. It's really more of a shift in the incentive the federal government offering. Um, so that, that's certainly been one there um, in, in terms of group care. And I'd say, um, additionally, a, a big area where there's been a, a lot of confusion has been around the intersection of family first and the Medicaid program, really trying to understand how do these interact, um, what kind of new requirements are there in terms of um, which entity is paying for what services. Um, there's there's a lot to unpack with that. And so um, through the guide, we've been trying to help explain that, for example, in a very unusual twist for folks that are used to Medicaid rules, that Title IV-E prevention services are the payer of last resort and not the Medicaid program. Um, and, and so that's an area where, um, through the guide, we really tried to provide in the, in the chapter on the Medicaid program a good um, set of structured questions for states to look at to think about the ways that their program might intersect with their Medicaid program and to think about how to best leverage the complementary impact of the two together. I also wanted to add, Tom, because I'm not sure we fully answered your question about common concerns and, is- and issues that we were hoping to address. Um, I think, you know, largely what we were trying to do is demystify um, the details of the law. Um, it is super big and complex, as, we, as we've mentioned a few times now, and um, it's really easy to get bogged down in the details um, and get bogged down in the legislative text. And so what we tried to achieve here was um, a layperson's um, 
translation of what all of this means um, for child welfare agencies and anyone else who's working to implement the law. So um, various aspects of the law that I think we we really broke down um, in detail were um, the provisions related to the Title IV-E Prevention Services Clearinghouse, which as your listeners probably know is um, going to be reviewing and rating many, many programs that um, may or may not qualify under the evidentiary standards of the law, breaking down how the standards under Family First are different from the evidentiary standards in other clearinghouses, for example, the Title IV-E, or I'm sorry, the California Evidence-Based Clearinghouse, which is another super common clearinghouse in child welfare. Also some uh, confusion related to maintenance of effort, which, um, you know, our group also found confusing and tried to try to explain it in a way that was helpful for us as well. Um, And, you know, many other elements of the law like that, that I think are are really easy to feel. um, uh, They're just very confusing. And so hopefully what we have achieved here is um, something that helps folks understand them a little bit better and helps them to move forward. So you're you're leading me right to now the you know the use of the guide and where it stands right now is uh, well more than two hundred pages but we understand clearly you guys have broken down into chapters how should someone you know and you guys mentioned this was written to for for, for a layperson to understand and and help implement how should somebody use the guide to help them kind of meet the provisions or or you know change their actions when it comes to aligning to family first. Yes, the the guide certainly is comprehensive. It's and long. It's two hundred and twenty some pages, but you know there was a lot in there, a lot in the law, and a lot that we had to unpack. And we were very strategic in trying to, um, for each individual chapter of the guide, trying to have several subsections that would make it easier for a person or a reader to go through and narrow down the specific area of interest that they were coming to the guide for. So, for example, in the prevention chapter, we have subsections that are based on uh, questions referring to the eligible prevention programs, a section on the duration of the services, a section on who is eligible for the services, a piece on the candidates for foster care, um, a subsection on the administrative and training costs, the MOE. So, again, we were trying very hard to make sure that we weren't just – throwing a lot of questions at our users and we're trying to break it down in a way that we thought was um, logical if you were coming to this guide with a specific um, lens. Um, and so we, we hope that readers find that useful, um, but we, we do know that there is a lot in here. Um, but we also tried to include where we could some boxes that have overviews. Um, for example, we have a wonderful box in the chapter on the maintenance of effort requirement where we really lay out the steps that a jurisdiction could use as they're trying to make that calculation of the expenses that would count towards their MO, their MOE. Um, so we, we do hope that folks um, get creative in how they are skimming through this large document. I would also add that, um, you know, Largely, our focus in this guide was on the minutiae of Family First and all of its complexities and breaking that down in a way that's understandable and hopefully helpful for the field um, to serve as a go-to resource if you have a question about the details about the law. 
Um, but I think at the same time, we really want to encourage readers to think about the details and family first implementation overall, much more broadly in terms of what they want for their child welfare systems. Family first is obviously an amazing and historic opportunity, um, in the child welfare system. And it's a real opportunity for child welfare systems um, to think about what they want for children and families who touch the system, the kind of system that they wanna create and the type of services that should be available for these families. Family First is a tool to help them get there. And I think the more that they can think about, the more that they can approach this and use this guide to help them think in those broader terms and more visionary terms, the more helpful it will be and the more effective their implementation efforts will be. I think that perspective on vision is so important, Rebecca. I, I think so much of, you know, our groups have all been working so closely together on the set of policies for years now. So I think we've had so many conversations and have poured over all of the details of the law, of all of the um, guidance that's come out of the agencies, and we have in our heads a, a, a very expansive idea of what jurisdictions could do with all of these opportunities um, if they really use them to their maximum potential. And so what we want to make sure doesn't happen is that folks walk away from implementation of Family First with a, a sort of clipboard implementation mindset of, okay, here's the set of things that I need to do to check all these boxes to move forward. We really want to make sure that there's an understanding of just how much there is on offer here for jurisdictions to both do the best possible um, practices for children and be able to make their systems more sustainable, more effective and more efficient. You know, I, I like that talk of the, the mindset because far too often we can get caught up in, well, do the tools support the mission or has my mission somehow changed to align to what the tools will or will not allow me to do? And if your systems then, you know, do you have mission-led systems or is your mission to, you know, fit the systems? And uh, just keeping that uh, idea in mind because implementation and, and new policy kind of can, can bog down, bog down our, uh, our thinking. You know, Rebecca, you brought up the Title IV-E Prevention Services Clearinghouse. Um, how can the guide itself be used in conjunction with, with that or with, as you mentioned, the California Evidence-Based Clearinghouse when they're trying to, you know, find the right programs with, with the evidence backing behind it? So I, I would definitely consider them complementary, but I think they serve really different purposes. Um, our guide, of course, is more comprehensive and the clearinghouse is much more focused on programs and services that will be eligible to receive Title IV-E prevention dollars. Um, I, think, um, I think you should always go look on the Prevention Services Clearinghouse website to be sure that you're looking at the most up-to-date list of um, programs and services that have that have been approved. And they also have a list on there of programs and services that are in the queue um, that they're going to, they, they expect to be reviewing next. So that might be a helpful resource for folks too. And additionally, um, on their website, they have a whole handbook that explains how they are going about the review process. Um, it is definitely uh, dense and um, probably best suited to researcher types, but nonetheless, it's super helpful just in getting a sense for what would even make the cut of programs and services that they'd be willing to review. Um, our guide, I think, does a really good job like to, to 
um, Stephen Olander at CDF, to his credit, he did a really excellent breakdown of kind of what that handbook says in layperson's terms. So I would consult that if you're looking for a more um, uh, just simple version of and what what you really need to know from the handbook um, if you're not somebody who's going to be digging into the nitty gritty of the evidentiary standards. Um, that's a long way of saying I think they are complementary, but very different. You know, so this now pulls on something that I, I think is really, really neat about what this entire group has done with the guide, um, because you're not done and the questions will keep coming and we keep learning more. And so the idea of a living document is really coming into to play with with the guide that's been been created. I'd love, you know, Stephanie and team, love to you to tell me and to really tell the audience what's being done to ensure that the guide stays relevant and stays accurate. Absolutely. We we do not want this document to be a, a static guide that after a year or a few months is already a bit outdated. And so this group is closely monitoring any updates, including guidance from the Children's Bureau, legislative updates and changes in the field, and tweaking the answers to any relevant questions or adding new questions as they come up. We recently put out a new update to the guide that included changes from the recently passed Family First Transition Act, as well as updates to the Child Welfare Policy Manual. Um, along with the guide update, we include a list of uh, detailing changes so that when people want to refer back to the guide, they have a list of what we edited or added rather than going through the entire guide to see what changes were made. So that's a big thought there for folks. It's not something to just download and print off copies or download and have on your desktop because it can be changed. It can change. It has changed. It is evolving. Um, so with all of the questions that come in and with all the changes, where where is the decision making to say, okay, this is an idea or this is a need that uh, needs to be included in an update? How is that decision made towards, you know, what do we update versus, no, this is not relevant? How is that made by, again, such a diverse group? So we are following updates to statute and guidance from the Children's Bureau, but we also continue to solicitate um, questions from the public about things that should be added. And so if people have questions that were not covered in the guide, we really encourage listeners to go to our website at the Children's Defense Fund, or sorry, childrensdefense.org slash implementing family first, where we have an area where you can submit your questions or comments there that could be added to the guide for us to consider. I would also add if anyone um, who's listening and is reading the guide too, which we hope you'll do, um, feels confused by any of the questions, that is a great place to um, send us a comment as well. Um, and that'll that'll help us understand how useful our answers are. And we're always open to making revisions to the extent that um, the field doesn't feel like we've sufficiently answered a question. And we'll make sure that we put uh, links to that within within the show notes here uh, for for this episode, so folks um, can go in and you know kind of hey bookmark it if that's the best way to always make sure that you've got the the right uh, update. Um, so, guys, just uh, give me that again. I want to make sure that folks have have uh, the most recent and most up to date guide one more time, Stephanie. If you could just pass along uh, the contact information. Sure. The website is childrensdefense.org 
backslash implementing family first. Um, and so we recommend that everyone access the guide through our website on that webpage um, instead of, as you mentioned, downloading the guide so that we are that people are sure they have the most updated version. Um, there's also a space on that webpage where people can go and sign up to get emails so that as soon as there is a new version, um, that they get an alert about that the guide has been updated and detailing the changes that were made. Well, I really appreciate just the teamwork and the ability to, to collaborate and, and work together on this, knowing that it started well before the idea for the guide, but just in working with Family First and having this uh, group of, of experts together and, and all the folks who aren't able to join us, but uh, were a big part of being in a, a huge part of that roundtable. Um, Rebecca and Zach and Stephanie, I truly appreciate you guys coming in and sharing uh, both what this guide can do, but also everything that went behind it. And I guess that is going to continue uh, being behind it as this guide continues uh, to evolve. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Really appreciate your effort. And uh, thank you guys so much for being part of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Thanks, Tom. It was great being here. A reminder about where you can find the guide. It is available online at childrensdefense.org slash implementing hyphen family hyphen first. So if you go to childwelfare.gov, we'll have a link to the guide along with links to the Title IV-E Prevention Services Clearinghouse, uh, the California Evidence-Based Clearinghouse, along with links to other prevention and group and residential care resources, including the Prevention Resource Guide. They'll all together on this episode's webpage, again, at childwelfare.gov. Of course, Information Gateway is your place for child welfare-related resources, information you can share with clients and families, information on laws and policies, including our deep list of state statutes. There you can see the statutes from your state or any other state related to adoption, foster care, and child welfare. So if you'd like a little help in your information search, no problem. Reach out to our information support services team. They'll help you find what you need. They are available at info at childwelfare.gov. Or if you're online visiting Child Welfare Information Gateway, you can use our live chat feature or reach out via telephone at 1-800-394-3366. Thanks so much for uh, Stephanie, uh, Rebecca, and Zach's time. They're they're able to spend that energy and that insight with us to discuss implementing the Family First Prevention Act. And thanks to you, as always, for listening and spending your time with us here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.